Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you for our creative team that we have here and making these concepts percolate in our minds and think about them differently. We now turn our attention toward you and your word. You said in your word that a wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. As you give to us this morning the wise counsel of your word, we pray that we would be those men and women that hear and increase in learning. And in learning, Lord, I pray that we would be worshiping. We would worship the one that we learn more about. As we see him clearly, I pray we would also see the plan that you have for our lives individually. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I realize that the question I'm about to ask is a tough one for people living in the Sun Belt, but what is the foggiest place on the face of the earth? First service, somebody said Alabama, and that's not true. Last night, somebody said England. Where? London. Somebody said London. I hear that. I've heard that a lot. It's actually Canada. The, not Canada as a whole, but one particular place, it's called the Grand Banks, In Newfoundland, off the coast there, there's a couple of currents in the ocean. The Labrador Current, which is cold from the north, and the Gulf Stream from the south, create this interesting mixture that produces 206 days of fog every year. Steve Stucker, our weatherman, did you know that? Okay, you didn't even know that. Okay, so it's like the opposite of us, isn't it? We have uh, 310 days of sunshine a year. They have 206 days of fog a year. Sort of a trick question, actually, because the foggiest place in the world is the human heart. When it comes to truth about God, when it comes to the identity of Jesus Christ, people are, by and large, foggy. They have foggy notions about who He is. Now, fog can be beautiful. You know, objects are rendered sort of magically, mystically softer, and uh, they look beautiful, but it can also be very dangerous because you lose visual perception. You don't know if a car's um, 10 feet or 20 feet ahead of you. And, and, and that's the reason whenever it gets foggy in certain areas, um, they're always worried about pile-ups on the freeway. I heard recently about a pile-up in India during a fog bank where three, two or 300 cars at one time piled up. Hundreds of people were injured. Now, in chapter 7, a fog has settled in over the hearts of men and women concerning Christ. There's the fog of unbelief in chapter 7. We're told that even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. There's the fog of hatred in this chapter. Jesus' enemies that have always been down south in Jerusalem are intensifying their hatred toward him. They want to get rid of him. He's a deceiver to them. Then there's the fog of religion in this chapter. Some would look at him and say, well, he's a good person. He's a good man. He's a good rabbinical teacher or religious leader. 
And you know, some people actually prefer to see Jesus through the fog. Because just like fog renders physical objects more beautiful, to some people, it's just more beautiful to imagine Jesus as being this way or that way than how he really is. But that too is very dangerous. Let me add another fog that is prevalent in our culture. It's the fog of media. The media fogs Jesus. Every Christian holiday, Easter and Christmas, they feel bound almost to release some new story or documentary on the real Jesus, as if nobody knew until now. And all sorts of different ideas are postured. There's a steady stream of these ideas. Some say that he was an illusionist. Others say that he was a guru. Others say he was a world traveler. I saw one documentary that said that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and they were trying to create a secret lineage to rule the world. A steady stream of weird ideas, foggy ideas concerning Jesus. In chapter 7, the fog is lifted. And really, that's what happens in the Gospel of John. John lifts the fog and lets us see Christ for who he really is, who he claimed to be, and people's reaction to that. Let's look at the first 13 verses then of chapter 7. By the way, this is week number 30 of our studies in the Gospel of John. So we're already in chapter 7. If you're wondering how long the series is going to be, that's probably a good indication. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, that is to walk about, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, for your disciples, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. There's four things that I want to draw your attention to as the fog lifts on Christ this morning. Number one, I want you to notice his unwavering priority. Jesus had a task that he was performing that is alluded to by John. Now, you'll notice the phrase that says, after these Things, one of John's favorite little two-word phrases in Revelation and in the Gospel of John, meta tauta, after this, after these things. It's a transitional phrase. It says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. 
We're not told by looking at it, but if you compare two verses, one with the other, you can see how much time we're talking about. Go back to chapter 6 and notice it says in verse 4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. That's chapter 6. That's the setting. Now look at chapter 7, verse 2. Now the feast or the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So chapter 6 happens at Passover. Chapter 7 happens at tabernacles. That's a six-month gap. Passover is in the spring. Tabernacles is in the fall. This is a six to seven month gap. And all John says about it is after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. That's all we're told. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in that phrase that aren't told to us by John. I have to tell you on John's defense, the reason John doesn't include what the other gospels include, and I'll tell you what those events were, is John isn't trying to give us a chronology of events, but rather an anthology of events. Select events that show who Jesus is so that we might believe in Him. That's His purpose. But what things were happening during those six months that John is silent about? Well, the other Gospels fill in the gaps. The events between Matthew chapter 15 and 18 happen between chapter 6 and 7 of John. And that's interesting because if you were to look over those chapters, though Jesus did meet with people publicly, by and large, those six months were spent alone with his disciples. He was training them. He was readying them for what they were going to be in for. So he does go up to like Caesarea Philippi, with his disciples alone and says, who do men say that I am? And then the second question, who do you say that I am? He wanted them to get that under their belt. Then he takes three of his disciples to a high mountain. He's transfigured before them. Then Jesus deals with the whole issue, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Something the disciples asked. Then he gives a series of parables that he unlocks only for his disciples. So, do you get the contrast? In chapter 6, he spends two days with 15,000 people. And then he spends six months with his disciples alone. What does that tell us about his priorities? What does that tell us about what was most important to him at this point? He was training these 12. Now, I'm going to delve into it a little differently Why did Jesus spend three and a half years on earth in public ministry? Yeah, I know he taught people during that time and he did miracles, but principally, why did he spend three and a half years on earth? It's really not a long time, but a lot of people say, well, Jesus only came to die on the cross. Well, if that were true, he only needed a weekend. But he spends three and a half years. And he does that because he's building up the lives of men that he's going to release into this world to do his work. Question. Did Jesus know that the whole world needed to hear his message? Is that true or false? That's true. Jesus knew the whole world needed to hear his message. So what was his strategy to reach the world? Was it to have 
personal crusades and mass meetings? I mean, why didn't Jesus go from Tyre to Sidon and and then Capernaum and all the way work his way down to Jerusalem and have mass meetings where he's going to feed 5,000 and 10,000 and 15,000 and then talk to them? Why didn't he do that? That's not his strategy. It's rather to pour his life into other men and reproduce himself in them and then send them out. And when he sends them out, he tells them to do the same thing. To go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded. Now Paul, who was an apostle, though later on he did not follow Jesus in the flesh, he picked up on that same principle. He reproduced himself in Timothy and in Titus and in others and told them to do the same thing. The classic passage in 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's discipleship. That's reproducing your life in the life of another person. And this kind of one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-twelve goes a long way in winning the world over to the message of Christ. In fact, it's the best way. There's a statistic I've quoted to you before that it's staggering, but it's true. It's been estimated that if we had an unlimited budget, which we don't, but let's say we did, we had an unlimited budget, and we could do mass evangelistic crusades so that we could fill a stadium with 50,000 people every single night for 35 years straight. So we went to one place and another place and another place. We had 50,000 people every night for 35 years. And let's say that every night 1,000 people in that 50,000-seat arena came forward to receive Christ. Well, in the end of one year, you have 365,000 new believers. At the end of 35 years, do you realize we would be further behind the task of world evangelism than the day we started? You go, I don't see how that's possible. Simply because of the birth rate. The birth rate on the globe right now is exponentially growing so fast, we couldn't offset enough people being born with people who are being converted. You go, well, that's sort of depressing. Ah, but here's the good news. If you were the only saved person on the earth and you prayed that God would allow you to win one person to Christ in 12 months, if that happened, then at the end of one year, there's now two saved people on the earth. If both of you commit to doing that again in the second year, after year two, you have four. After year three, you have eight and then 16, and then 32, and then 64. And it exponentially grows so that within a half a century, the entire earth could potentially be one to Christ. That's one-on-one. Jesus had a priority of getting these men aside and teaching them for six months while only spending two days with this crowd in Galilee. That's his priority. Now, that's how we have to look at success. Success of a church is not the size of its congregation. It's the depth of its discipleship. Anybody can get a crowd. I guarantee you, have giveaway food, have really cool music, have harmonica playing monkeys or something, and people will come. 
just to see something wow. But discipleship will take your life, pour it into another life. But the benefits are incredible. Two questions I have to ask you at this point. How long have you been a Christian? And number two, where are your disciples? How long have you been a Christian and where are your disciples? You go, well, that's sort of an arrogant thing. I don't have disciples. You know, Paul the Apostle wrote to the church at Thessalonica and he said, you are the way you are and you've grown the way you've grown because you have become followers of me as I follow the Lord. Twice he said to the Corinthian church, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. There's nothing wrong with following someone if that someone is following Christ. That's how discipleship takes place. Now, if you happen to be in ministry of any sort, if you're a ministry leader, if you're a small group leader, if you're starting up something in the church, some new group, and you're always, or a missionary, and you're always wondering, how come there's not more people that come? There should be more people that come. Listen, you concentrate on depth and let God worry about breath. Just concentrate on discipleship and let God take care of the math. That's a New Testament principle. That's the principle of Acts chapter 2. You know that famous verse in verse 42, Acts 2:42, And they devoted themselves continually to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread, and prayers. That's discipleship. And it says the Lord added daily those who were being saved. That's God's business. So you concentrate on discipleship. Let God take care of the rest. I mean, here, here's why I'm sharing this with you. Because no matter what you do or where you are in life, even if you feel like you're restricted and you can't give more of your time, this you can do. This anybody can do. And this is a healthy church when people are doing this. You say, well, I work at a job. I'm chained at a job. I have to give so much of my time to a job. Do you have any workers around you? Maybe one's a Christian. Or maybe one's an unbeliever that you could lead to Christ and then disciple that one. Somebody else might say, I'm a mom raising kids. I'm stuck at home. You can disciple those children. That's your mission field. I love what one woman had over her kitchen sink, a sign that read, Divine service rendered here three times daily. That's that's how she saw her cooking of the meals and training of those children. So his unwavering priority, those disciples... Here's the second thing to notice as the fog clears. His unbelieving family. Verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, because he's staying up in Galilee, depart from here and go to Judea, go down south, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, what brothers is he talking about? Talking about his brothers, physical flesh brothers. Here's how it happened. When Jesus was born, he was born through the conception of the Holy Spirit. He was begotten by the Holy Spirit in the virgin womb of Mary. But after he was born, it would seem that Joseph and Mary had normal relationships and had a series of children. The Bible speaks about Jesus having both sisters and brothers. 
We're even given their names in Matthew 13 after Jesus speaks in the synagogue at his home digs in Nazareth. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this his mother, Mary, and aren't these his brothers? Now listen, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Those were his four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. Now, if that's a chronological list, and most certainly it is, they would put the oldest first and the youngest last. That means that James had Jesus as his older brother. All of them did, but his only older brother was Jesus for him. Can you imagine what it would be like to have your big brother perfect, The only guy ever to never sin is your big brother. That would create some issues, wouldn't it? And it evidently did. Here they're they're suggesting something. Now, why do they suggest that Jesus go down to Judea? Why, Why are they telling him this? I can think of a few reasons. Number one, they realized that Jesus had just lost a boatload of disciples in chapter 6. Remember it says they they turned and followed Jesus no more. Maybe they're saying, look, if you want to get them back and you want to really get this show on the road, do something really spectacular at the feast in Jerusalem because your, your popularity is sort of faltering. That'll boost it up. Possibility number two, being Jewish 2,000 years ago, their idea of a Messiah was a political Messiah like those in chapter 6. Remember, it says they wanted to take him by force and make him a what? A king. So maybe they thought, well, if he goes down to Jerusalem and he can pull this off and become the king and overthrow the Romans, well, we're his brothers. We could have like really cool positions in this reign of our brothers. Possibility number three, and I tend to lean to this, they just wanted to be convinced. The key word in verse four is the word if. Notice that. If you do these things, they're not convinced, then show yourself to the world. In other words, look, Jerusalem's the real test. Why are you wandering around up here in the boondocks of Galilee? Let's see what you can do at the feast in front of the Sanhedrin and all of the bigwigs of Judaism. This is sort of similar to the crowd in chapter 6 who said to Jesus, what sign will you perform that we may see and believe? I want you to think about this. Jesus' own brothers were unbelievers. Do you have any unbelievers in your family? And you walk around feeling guilty all the time. Man, I've worked so long and I've prayed so hard and I've done everything to get them to Christ. I've given them books. I've taken them to church. I've put tracks in their sandwiches. Anything I can do to awaken them. Jesus' own Brothers didn't believe in him. You know what the principle is? Proximity is no guarantee of spirituality. Proximity is no guarantee of spirituality. Jesus' own disciple, Judas Iscariot, was not a believer. So his brothers didn't believe in him. You know to what extent they didn't believe in him? They thought he was nuts. Mark chapter 3 is the story of when Jesus is doing all of this ministry and he's not even getting time to sleep. 
and time to eat. And his family finds out about that. And they come to where Jesus is and they say about Jesus, his family says about Jesus, he's out of his mind, his family. King James, I think, renders it best. He's beside himself. Ever seen a person talking to somebody else that isn't there? They're just sort of muttering. They're really talking to themselves beside themselves. or They think they're talking to somebody. He's nuts, they say. That's what his family said about him. I'm sharing all this and pressing this point because I want you to be encouraged if you have unsaved family members. Your family is the hardest group to witness to. Have you discovered that? You know, other people will like listen and dig in, but your family, well, they watched you grow up. They know you. Here's what else you need to know about Jesus' brothers. They're unbelievers now, but later on they'll be believers. In time, they'll come around. They'll show up in Acts chapter 1. When the early church is starting, Jesus has ascended into heaven. It says the apostles were there and Mary and Jesus' brothers were there. They were part of that first church. Now, do you wonder what it was that changed their minds? You know what it is? The resurrection. I heard somebody whisper it. The resurrection. When their older brother got up from the dead, then they said, okay. We believe. In fact, Paul even writes about James' conversion, the brother of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Christ was raised on the third day and appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. You know what happened to James, Jesus' brother? He became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He became the head of the church. And he wrote a book called the Book of James. And you know what happened to Judas, also called Jude? He wrote the Book of Jude, that little book right before Revelation. That's his brothers. And you know what's really cool? You know how they started their letters? They didn't start them throwing out names like, James the brother of Jesus. Or Jude, I'm Jesus' younger brother. Both of them said, the bondservant. James, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. They were truly converted, no doubt, humble because of the years they had spent in unbelief. Now they have finally come to believe. If you have unsaved family, then say it this way. That family member isn't saved yet. Don't forget to throw that word in, yet. God has ways to work on those family members of yours you haven't even thought of yet. Yet. Here's the third thing I want you to notice, and that is his uncompromising chronology. It's interesting the way he speaks back to his brothers in verse 6. Look at this. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. He's using the word kairos here, or opportunity. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. They're not going to hate you. You're part of the system. I tell it the truth, and they hate the truth. You go up to this feast. 
I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. There's an overarching theme that runs through the fabric of Jesus' life. You see it everywhere. He's always on a divine timetable. He always speaks about his time or his hour. He's already done it once at the wedding feast of Cana. But listen to this sampling, just so you get the picture. This is John chapter 7, verse 30. They sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, verse 20. No one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. John chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world. John chapter 17, now he's edging closer and closer to the cross. He prays to his father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Behold, the hour is at hand that the son of man is betrayed. What hour was he talking about specifically? His death, the cross. His whole life was on a timetable toward the cross. So they're saying, show yourself. He says, it's not the right time. You know when the right time will be? Six months ahead or six months from this date, six months in the future, the next Passover is when Jesus will publicly show himself like the disciples say he should. And a few days later, he'll be crucified. That's when he says to his disciples, remember he's coming into town. He goes, hey, go to the next town and get me a donkey. Not because he wanted a donkey ride, but it was to fulfill prophecy. And he comes riding on this donkey. They put palm branches at his feet. And people say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later, they put him on a cross. Because that was the right time. That's the right time. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Paul the Apostle says, In the fullness of of the time or at exactly the right split second if i can be free in my translation god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law did you know that daniel even predicted the exact time of messiah's coming and death way back in the old testament way back in daniel chapter 9 It says, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be 483 years. That's an odd prediction. It was March 14th, 445 B.C. that Artaxerxes gave the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And Daniel predicted that 483 years later, the Messiah the Prince will come. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, will be 483 years. There was a guy who looked at that and he said, hmm, I'm going to study it. His name is Sir Robert Anderson. He was the head of Scotland Yard. He did the math. He published it in a book called The Coming Prince. He started at the starting date, March 14th, 445 B.C., and counted 483 years, transferring it into days using the Babylonian calendar of 360 days per year. He counted 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 B.C., and it ended up on April 6th, 32 A.D., which happened to be. Notice that happened to be. The very date Jesus sat on that donkey and presented himself at the right time 
to Jerusalem as their Messiah. A few days later, like Daniel said, he will be cut off, and he was cut off. Now, why am I belaboring this? Here's why. Your life will go better once you realize that your time and God's time may be different. You can be like Jesus' brothers and suggest, you ought to do something now. Or you can just let him figure out the best time. How many of you believe God's always on time? Okay, by putting up your hand, you're saying, I believe God's on How many of you wonder sometimes if God's on time? Okay, that's honest. <laughs> Opportunities go by. God, why didn't you do something? Let me counsel you here, Lord. This is a perfect time for you to do this. Well, that's what his brothers were saying. Charles Spurgeon said, it's one of my favorite quotes of his, There are no loose threads in the providence of God. No stitches are dropped. No events are left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time. And the whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. Here's the fourth and final thing I want you to note. Is his uncommitted assembly. The people that were there at the feast who were looking for him. Or who heard about him. Verse 10. When his brothers had gone up. Then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, cryptos, in secret. That is, no public fanfare at this point. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? That's how I think they said it. Now, the Jews are his enemies at this point. Because I want you to notice in verse 11, it says the Jews sought him at the feast. Go back to verse 1. It says he wouldn't go to Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. So when he gets to Jerusalem, it's this group that says, where is he? They're looking for him. You know why they asked the question? Because it was his brothers that they had seen. His brothers went up. People in those days traveled in families in a caravan together for the feast. So in seeing his brothers, they thought, he's, don't tell me he didn't come with you. Where is he? Because they wanted to kill him. But then there's the rest of the group, and they're divided, it says. Verse 12, there was much complaining, murmuring, whispering among the people concerning him. Some said, he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. That's a whole sermon, just that verse. I'll spare you on that one. Wow. You see that group of people? This assembly, they're foggy concerning Jesus. Some say he's a good man. Some say he's a deceiver. Which group is right? It's a trick question, really. Which group is right? Neither. Neither. Jesus wasn't a good man. Good men don't say the kind of things Jesus said. Good men don't run around saying, I'm God. And if you don't believe that, you'll die in your sins. That's not a good man. It could be a deceiver, but that's not a good man, and he's not a deceiver. You know what the right answer is, who he is? It was Peter's answer back in chapter 6, verse 69. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I love C.S. Lewis's quote. What a lucid thinker he was. One of his famous quotes is, 
either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for being a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Do you know him? Can you see clearly through the fog of popular opinion and various opinion? Is your life on divine schedule? Here's here's what happens. If you're an unbeliever, your life is purposeless, meaningless. You're just sort of wandering from experience to experience and you have nice little human experiences here and there and and you really keep no appointments except one and that is death. It is appointed unto every man once to die. But once you become a believer, you hop onto redemptive time. Every second counts. That's why Paul said, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You want to make every second count and be right on God's perfect timetable. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, for some of us, the fog has rolled in, and for some, it's been there for years and years. We have, like this crowd, been divided, perhaps. Some believing, even here, that, well, he's just a good man. He said some good things. He was a good example. Others believe that he didn't do the world any good, that he, along with other religious leaders, are the cause of all the problems that we see around us. The truth is, this was the Christ who came at the perfect time, who was the Son of the living God, God in human flesh, God in a human body. And what the people here heard, they didn't like And there was such animosity against him. And that's because Jesus wanted it that way. He didn't want anything in the middle. He said, you're either for me or against me. And I pray for everyone who's gathered here today that we would all be for you. Our lives would be submitted to you. And like the brothers of Christ, whatever things we have said about you or to you in the past, we would eventually become the bondservants of Jesus We pray, Lord, that your will would be done in our lives, just as the fog has cleared from the person of Christ, so your design and intent for our life would also be crystal clear to us as we serve you. We say a special prayer for our unbelieving family members. They come to our minds just now. So many prayers have gone up for them. Lord, we pray that though they're not yours yet that we would see the the fruition of all of our prayers come to be bring them to your side in Jesus name Amen Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. 
If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.